Uh, I guess this is, I've titled this applying for jobs, preparing your life beyond your PhD, but it might not necessarily be just straight after your PhD. It could be any time in your life when you're applying for a job. So just to quickly, a bit of an intro to me or where you can get um, contact details from me um, on all of the social media channels. If you only are on one of those, I encourage you to be on LinkedIn. If you're on LinkedIn already, please do connect with me. Uh, obviously today we've got 45 minutes to go through this and applying for jobs you know, has been a topic of entire workshops that I've run. Uh, so if you want to know more after the session, feel free to come and uh, make, a, make contact with me. I'll put up the, my details again later on, but just know that I've got things like coaching programs, workshops. There's a lot more information on my website. There are some webinars and things as well. Uh, and, um, so feel free to get uh, copies of those. I'm on YouTube as well. And I do have a tendency once I get going to talk quickly or to mumble. And if that happens, feel free to let me know and I'll go back over what it is that you might've missed. And throughout the whole webinar, feel free to ask questions at any point in time. Uh, I'd Like I said, I love it if you've got your video on then I can see your face and see your reaction to what I'm saying. Uh, and as well, if your mic is open, that's really good because then we can have a quick and easy chat. Most of the stuff that I will present to you today uh, is my intellectual property and I'm happy for you to use it in whatever way you see fit. The main thing is that if you do share it with others that you attribute it to me. So you could share it on the internet, for example, and I'd love it if you tagged me uh, on whatever social media platform it is that you might have shared it on. Quickly, a little bit about me. I'm essentially described myself as a career coach, working with PhD students and early career researchers primarily, but also established researchers. And I help them to answer the question, uh, what next? And so that's got me to this point of, you know, what it is around the job application process that might be uh, of interest to you. Uh, I think there's some background worth knowing around PhD students. So currently in Australia, there are between 45,000 and 66,000 students enrolled in a PhD. The number's probably closer to 66 now. The number goes up and down, obviously, as people graduate and more people enrolled, but ultimately the number is on the increase year to year to year. Roughly 9,000 of those graduate each year. Uh, and if you look at the data on university jobs, there's about 1,400 new university jobs each year. So if you've paid attention to those numbers, there's 9,000 graduates and 1,400 jobs. So it's going to be competitive looking for an academic job or looking for a job at a university as a PhD student. And that doesn't take into account the 135,000 people with a PhD already in Australia um, and the 120,000 already in academia. So already in theory, there's an oversupply of people with PhD for what you might consider to be academic jobs. In terms of data from uh, other reports and whatnot, so that data is all from provided data to uh, a place called YouTube. Uh, there are annual PhD completions have increased in the last two decades, as I spoke about already. It, about okay. um, 20 years ago, it was 2000. Now it's getting closer to 10. Um, and as I already said, there's more jobs than there are, there's more graduates than there are jobs available. And so people are looking outside academia for jobs. Um, 
a lot of people enter the public sector. So now increasingly people are doing PhDs to do work other than academia, which I think is a good thing. And um, if you've got a business PhD or a finance PhD, the energy and resource sectors are where you might end up. Uh, if you've got a health or medical degree, public and private health are where you might end up and growth sectors are where you might be looking. And obviously everyone talks about PhD students being or PhD graduates being key to innovation. And so that's what the most of the dogma is around looking for work. In terms of what you might expect for your career, this is a data taken from the UK, but I've got no reason to believe that the Australian data is any different. On graduation, half of you will end up, or half PhD students will end up outside science, and the other half will progress through their career, and every few years will transition either from early career into, um, into say, more research permanent staff, or they might transition into non-university roles. Uh, one of the things that's worth noting is that in our lifetime, we'll probably have something like five to seven careers and between 11 and 17 jobs. So the job finding and hunting process is something that we'll need uh, quite regularly throughout life. And having experienced perhaps multiple careers or certainly um, multiple different roles and jobs, I can say that sometimes careers can be like a drunken walk from one job to the next. Uh, and that it's easy to look back on them and then that sometimes looking forward, it can be hard for jobs to make sense. So if you're looking for work and what next doesn't seem immediately obvious, then uh, don't be dismayed because I know that for myself, looking forward, things aren't always making sense, but certainly looking back, I can often draw a straight line about what led me to get the next piece of work or what led me in my case to transition from one type of work to another. I'd, obviously, we're all at different ages and stages in life, um, and certainly not all of us are in our 20s, but if you expect to live to your 80s, you've got multiple lifetimes ahead of you if you're in your 20s now, and even if you're in your 60s, you've still got a whole other lifetime of someone who's lived in their 20s, so you can expect to have time to make mistakes, to have new opportunities, to change careers, etc. We've got a long time ahead of us, so uh, don't feel pressure that if you can't find the perfect job for you now, that that's something that you have to do. But what I would say that is if you're not earning or learning, then you need to be um, doing one of those two things. And learning doesn't need to be formal education, but I think learning from others uh, is a great way to make sure that you um, are developing your skills and your employability. In terms of what might be available to you, some people have think that once they've got a PhD and they find it hard to find work that they might need to retrain. And I would say you don't need to do that. This is data from a survey conducted in Australia um, a few years ago, and basically PhD students or graduates are ready to work straight out of their PhD. They've got the skills necessary to be productive um, more than 80% of the time. So the, there is no need to retrain. The top kinds of skills that people are looking for are things like problem solving, teamwork, planning, and organizing um, for, for businesses. And obviously for universities, you're already developing those skills as a researcher but one of the things that we fail to do I think when we look for work is think about the entire process and to what I would call attack the entire process so my view of what a job application process looks a bit like this so there are roughly nine steps so there's someone creates a position description or a PD then they'll create an ad and advertise then you as the respondent will write a response to that ad as in the form of a CV and a cover letter 
someone will do some kind of shortlisting and then a group of those people might be asked to do a task, the shortlisted people. Then based on that task, there might be another shortlisting process uh, and those people might be asked for an interview. Then the people involved in hiring might check your references and then ultimately you'll get offered a piece of work. And I think a lot of time we spend is spent on essentially just attacking the, the job ad, if that makes sense. We look for ads, everything that we do is around the job ad itself, and we don't spend a lot of time on the other nine processes and uh, on the other eight processes. And from my perspective, that means that we could miss out on as much as you know the other, whatever it is, nine, uh, eight ninths of the job application uh, opportunities. As a result, if all you're doing is looking at the ad, you, you can be subject to various biases and various things that might prevent you from getting the role. So if you're not aware, lots of um, shortlisting now happens via robots. Um, and that can mean that if your job can't be read by a robot, your application, I should say, can't be read by a robot, then you might not get shortlisted, not because you don't have the skills or not because you uh, haven't got a good application. Uh, then if you're, all you're doing is focusing on the ad and responding to the ad, things in your CV or your resume or your cover letter might um, mean that people apply ageism or sexism or racism to your application. So uh, again, just focusing on the ad means that you might be open to those things more frequently. And obviously spelling and grammar make a big difference as well. And if all you're doing is focusing on the ad, then you've only got one opportunity to, um, to make those mistakes or to not make those spelling and grammar mistakes. So how do we attack all nine parts of this process? I think a useful diagram to use is this one from a colleague, Jane Anderson. If you reuse this, make sure you acknowledge her. Her details are at the bottom right of this slide. So basically she says that we either know what we want or we don't know what we want. And sometimes in looking for work, I think that's entirely true. We kind of know we want a job, but not knowing what kind of job we want. Um, and then in terms of um, the people we know, we either know someone who can help us with that job or we don't know someone. And so depending on what combination of those you're at, you might choose to do a different thing. Uh, and so most of what we do around job search is focus on the bottom right hand corner, this corner, um, this corner here, the network or the search activity. We, we don't we don't often use this direct contact one where you know we're asking people for work. Uh, we're not often telling people what it is that we can do, um, and we're not offering often educating others about um, our skills and what else we could do other than what they might already know us for. So those are some ways that we can perhaps attack the whole process. And it's useful to know that 70% of all jobs are filled by some kind of informal or networking activity. So if you haven't got a large network or you don't think you've got a large network, growing your network is one of the best things you can do to increase the chances of getting a job in an area that you want. Um, and later on also some data that says that even um, the jobs that are filled via say an ad process, that a lot of the companies are using um, their formal and informal networks to find the candidates that they would encourage to go through the formal application process. So even if it is through an ad, it still is networking is what encourages someone to tap someone on the shoulder and say, apply for this job. So we have a look back at this process again, what are the different things that we can do? Um, so the first thing is if you're in academia and you're regularly presenting your work, every time you present, that's an opportunity to grow your network and to let people know the kind of work that you're interested in. That doesn't mean you stand at the front of the room and say, 
I would like a job or can you give me a job? But it does mean that you talk about the kinds of things that you like doing and who you'd like to work with. And you know, in a way say, you know, I'm not, like I said, not looking for work, but this is the kind of job that I like to do. I really enjoyed this part of the process or I really enjoy this part of the that particular project that I did. And the other important thing to do if you are at the front of the room or presenting a poster is if people come up and chat to you about your work to let them know that you're interested in connecting with them and staying in touch with them. And the easiest way that I find to do that is via social media uh, and whatever uh, mode you choose is up to you. But I find LinkedIn is the most valuable for me because it's related to work and you can see the kinds of things that your LinkedIn people are, are involved in. Uh, but you might choose another social media channel because you're comfortable with that. And if you're giving a talk or a presentation or if you're presenting a poster, make sure that your contact details are there and that when pe that you ask people to get in touch with you, that you say to them that you're open to connect with them and that you'd like to connect with them and invite them to do that with you. And that'll help grow your network. So in terms of looking for a job, um, networking is key. And if you're uncomfortable with networking, then you'll need to practice or find ways that make it more comfortable for you. And I have written a couple of articles around networking for introverts or how you can network without talking to people at all. Uh, and so that you might want to go and check those out on my website. So if we look at each individual process, well, part of this process, the first part in the job process is the position description. So like I said, if you know someone who is looking for you or someone like you, you can chat to them about the kind of role you want and they can write the position description that suits you, that suits your skills. And I've seen that happen lots of times before. Um, and in some instances, I've been the beneficiary of a position description written exactly for me, exactly for the, for the job that I was gonna fill in that particular organization. So knowing people and being involved in the process at the writing of the position description is important. The other thing that you could do in relation to finding work and the position description is to write a position description for the perfect job for you. So that would mean uh, knowing what skills are necessary, knowing what experience is necessary, knowing where the job would be, knowing what it would involve, etc. And the reason you do that is so that you can become more articulate around the kind of role that you're after. So when someone says to you, what are you up to? You can say to them, I'm looking for work. And then you can say, this is the kind of role that I'm looking for. And it might feel counterintuitive to get quite specific, but what it allows is for someone else to refer you quite easily. Oh, I know that, you know, Joyti or Tim or um, Sonal or Fiona are looking for this kind of role. And if they hear about that kind of role, they can refer you in. Whereas if all you're interested in is finding a research job or doing some qualitative research, everyone's interested in those kinds of things so that you don't immediately spring to mind. And so then the referral process can be a little bit more difficult than it might otherwise have been. The other thing, if you start writing this um, position description about the kind of job that you're after, then you can start using that as a way of searching the internet for your perfect job. So you can use those terms uh, and those uh, descriptors to look for the position that you're after. It'll make the process much easier. Um, in terms of the network that you, where you might go to find your network at the position description stage, um, 
sometimes the easiest place to look is in your own backyard. So if you look at where organizations get the skills from that they do, that they require to do the work they do, um, businesses talk about partnering with universities or research or sponsoring research grant applications. So have a look through your grant applications and see who your partners are. They might be interested in um, writing a job that sees you or someone like you join their organization rather than being a partner. Um, and the other thing that organizations do is network with leaders in their fields of interest. So if you can become a leader in your field, either in a real sense or in a virtual sense, so by posting regularly on the internet and being approachable around the kinds of work you do, then people will approach you and say, what would it take for me to, you know, to work with you? And then you can say, well, I'm actually looking for a job and I'd rather be employed than be a, a collaborator in that sense. Um, in terms of why people might connect with different organizations, it's useful to know that as well when you're talking about the position description. So universities want researchers to advance the body of knowledge and um, to access the specialist skill or specialist knowledge. And the same is true for government agencies, but businesses are more interested in other things. So they're interested in things that will help them get a competitive advantage, which is this idea of developing a new product or service. Um, and like I said, that idea of creating a competitive advantage or a competitive edge, which is entirely different to the reasons that you might have done research in the first place. So knowing these things when you're um, thinking about the position description and what they're looking for is really useful. And it's also useful when it comes to the next step, which is responding to the ad. Um, so like I already said, uh, responding to the ad is about knowing what people are looking for and also where to find what people are looking for or who people are looking for. So businesses, they, according to the research, they post a lot on the internet in terms of ads for new people. Um, and then personal networks are really important and work networks are really important to them. If you look at government agencies, it's really interesting. Direct approach is quite common for a government agency to find a new person. So that means if you're not in the network, then you can't be directly approached. And then they're looking at um, newspaper ads, although I think that'll be shifting more towards the internet advertising stuff as well. And again, personal contacts are important. So bear in mind for yourself and for your own networks, don't just think about work networks, think about your personal and your social networks as well. They can help you find work too. What about research centers or universities? So you can see here that research centers, this idea of direct approach is massive. It's nearly, this is all the way up to 80% here. So you can see that if you're not in someone's network, you might not be thought about for that research job. Personal networks are really important again, um, and obviously work networks. But if you have a look at the university one, this one is really important here, professional associations. So if you're not part of your um, professional association for your particular discipline, it might be worth considering joining just for the fact that you might get more connections and get closer to the kind of work that you're after. Obviously, if you're looking at changing careers and moving from, say, academia to um, outside academia, the professional association that you join is probably going to be the one related to industry rather than the one related to academia. Um, in terms of the difficulty that you might find in responding to these ads, you can see that um, I've highlighted the business ones here where... <clears throat> Most Australian university researchers don't go to don't go to business, but once you're in business, get here, getting another job in business is easy. So that transition from academia to industry will be more difficult. And I think that's a network 
related issues. So the, the networks we have when we're in academia necessarily don't include a business. And once we're in business, we have a wider network. So we're more exposed to it. So getting that business job is uh, easier, but certainly knowing where uh, staff come from. And if you're into research, knowing where research staff come from is a useful way um, of considering the ad and knowing who, who your competitors are going to be. Um, so writing your CV and cover letter is the next part in the process. And I've, I've delivered a number of webinars about this already. So if you'd like to go and watch those, please check them out on my website. And I've written blogs about them as well. And I'll, I'll put a link um, on the confirmation email that I'll send later to these um, webinars. But I'll go through some stuff very quickly. So the first is um, empathy. So one of the things that we do as applicants is we give every every single job, all of our information, all of the stuff about our role or what we think is necessary for the role. And that can be a bit problematic because if you've got 30 applicants to review and everyone has a 10 page application, that's 300 pages to look at. Uh, whereas what you really need is something that's succinct to the point, easy to read, easy to follow, good to skim, etc. So that would be my biggest piece of advice around writing CV and cover letters. Think about the, the assessor uh, on page one, I think a lot of you probably already know this of your resume, things like name, contact details, qualifications, key skills, and what some people call their profile or their professional profile. Then on page two, you'll repeat things like your name, contact details, so that if your two pages get separated, they can know whose CV it is. You might put a page number on there as well. And um, then you'll cover things like your employment history, your education and training, and then for, for some things, you won't pay much attention at all to your grants and awards, depending on what the application is for. And then you'll put a section that's called referees, but I would not write any contact details down for that. You just put uh, available upon request. And I'll get to why that is the case later on. So that's a quick summary of everything in terms of your resume and CV. And like I said, I've spent 45 minutes going through all of these things previously. So if you have a look on the website, you'll find this information so once you've done your CV, the next step is getting on the first shortlist. Um, and that's essentially the role of the cover letter and the CV. Um, and so if you haven't written a cover letter or a CV that, that gets you onto the shortlist, then you need to review um, your cover letters and your CV to see if they make sense to you. Like I said, they're not there to get you the job. They're there to get you shortlisted so that you can ultimately get interviewed. Um, and if you want to, and again, if you want to get on the shortlist without having to put in an application, the way to do that is to network. And again, I've seen people get shortlisted having not been part of the initial app job application process. In terms of the next step, which I call completing the task. So for many job application processes, there'll be some tasks where they want to assess what it is that you do and how well you do it. So your CV obviously has here's my list of experiences and your accomplishments. But uh, obviously an employer is taking somewhat of a risk to employ you based purely on that. So they'll ask you to complete a task. Sometimes they'll be video based. Sometimes they'll be written more often than not, there'll be something that's typed. Um, and these tasks are as much about um, what you've written and the way you've written it as well as how you do it. So for example, if it's a video based interview, the way you present on the video, the way you talk, whether you are well spoken, whether you're articulate is all as important as what comes out of your mouth. 
so you need to think about those things and the same with anything that you might write or type those things are really important the way you present your argument the way you structure the report if that's what they're asking you to do is just as important as what you've written in the report so they're looking for all of that and i know that my personal experience as well is those written tasks also assess things like your ability to use word excel or some other formatting program to present your work in a in a um in a way that looks pleasing as well um for some some tasks might be um, seen more like a pr preliminary interview and some um, job application processes completing the task might be part of the job application itself. So increasingly some um, research roles, some academic roles are asking you to write a written statement that will go in with your application. Personally, I think that's a massive waste of everyone's time, but if that's what they've asked you to do, you've got to go and do it. Uh, and like I said, what you write and how you write is just as important as um, the way it's all set out. So hopefully then you'll make the second shortlist. And as I said, how you respond is just as important as what you've written. Um, and know that most applicants will look good on paper. That's the reason why they got shortlisted. It's this, um, the, the, the way you respond in the task that makes, will make or break whether you get onto the, the next shortlist, the second shortlist. Um, and again, you can get onto the second shortlist by knowing people. I know people that have made it basically all the way to the job offer stage purely through um, knowing people. So the next part in the process is um, what I might just, or what you might consider the final interview. Um, and for some people, this, or for some roles, this might be a full blown, blown academic presentation. And again, uh, the ability to step into other people's shoes and know what they're looking for is really important and what kinds of things your competitors will be doing and where they'll be coming from. Um, so it's really important to do things like ask questions don't just answer the questions obviously you'll be well presented you'll dress appropriately for the interview um, you'll listen well to the questions and make sure that the way you're responding is in answer to the question um, you'll try and develop some kind of rapport with the people that are on the interview panel um, and the only way really to get good at this is to practice so that might be doing something in front of a video and pretending someone's asking you questions and watching the video back. It might be sitting with a friend or a colleague and getting them to ask you interview questions. And if you're short on a list of what might be asked at an interview, there are lots and lots and lots of resources on the internet. Just ask common, just ask Google about common interview questions. And I'm sure you'll get a list of several hundred, if not thousands of interview questions that you can practice. Um, so once they've interviewed you, most likely, if you're going through to the next stage, they'll would like to check your references. And so this is one of the reasons why you don't need to put references up front because they'll check them at, towards the end of the process. And so uh, my view is to make sure that um, you only ask people that will speak well of you to be your references. And if you don't know what the answer would be, if you don't know whether they will speak well of you, then I suggest the answer is they probably won't. Um, make sure you have multiple options for the kinds of people that you can put forward. So most jobs ask for three referees. Some ask for five. I don't know. Again, I don't know who's going to make five phone calls, but you will probably need a list of five to six people that you can put forward. And I would select however many that the job, um, the hire is looking for. 
but certainly select the ones that are the most appropriate to the role that you're looking for. So if you're in academia and you're going for a business role and you've got three business referees and three academic referees, I'd probably select two business ones and one academic one as the people that you put forward. Um, and certainly, again, one of the reasons I put the horse here is um, horses for courses. So choose the right referee for the right job. Um, not everyone is suitable for every job. Um, and make sure that you give everyone a brief around the role that you're going for. So you'll call up your referee and you'll say that, I've, that you've, you know, you've already got their permission to put them forward. So you'll let them know that you've been shortlisted and now they're doing referee checks. Uh, and that this is the role, this is the kind of skill set that they're looking for. You might even tell them the kind of things that you felt you did well in order to answer the interview questions so that they're well briefed and they can talk succinctly and highly of you when they get asked to provide the reference. You might even coordinate the time that they call. So you might say to your referee, what's a good day and time for the job to call? And you can let your the hiring organization know those things as well. And that's about looking after your referee so they feel prepared and organized as well as is, is about making sure that the person um, speaks highly of you. So if you've made it through all this point, the next thing is you'll, you'll have been selected, you'll be offered the job. So at this point, I still encourage you to think that you don't have to say yes. So you can get all the way through this and say no. Um, there are lots of options. They're choosing you and you are choosing them. So if something in the whole process didn't stick with you and you think that you don't want the job, then I would be quite comfortable saying no. Obviously, there are pragmatic reasons why you might feel that you need to say yes, but don't feel that you're obliged to say yes at this point. Uh, if you are offered the job at this point and you haven't already had the discussion around pay and conditions, make sure that you do now because once you've got the job, it might be too late to have that chat. Uh, and if you don't ask for what you're worth, you definitely won't get it. Um, make sure that you get clarity on what it is that you're after. So if you don't get a clear answer to those questions around pay and conditions, then perhaps you might say, well, let me think about the role and re-ask the questions that you're after. And if they can be put in writing the answers, then I would do that. Um, so, yeah, so that's basically what I think you might need to do in, you know, 30 minutes uh, about the job application process. Um, are there any questions in what I've put forward or any experiences that people would like to offer about their experience of going for jobs or being in the job application process? Bearing in mind, I think most of you are on mute. No questions? Cool. Um, so I hope that was useful to some or all of you or some parts of it were useful for all of you. Um, in terms of what's coming up in 2020, I'm going to be running a couple of new types of coaching programs. So previously I've primarily worked one-to-one -one with PhD students and uh, early career researchers. So I'm going to launch a couple of group mentor or group coaching programs in 2020. So if you'd like to get involved or you know someone who would like to get involved in a coaching program, it'll go for roughly 12 months. We'll meet monthly and discuss um, issues that you might face in, um, in your life as a PhD student or as a researcher. Um, I'd love you to get involved. If you're interested in knowing more, you can um, type something into the chat box. Oh, there are some questions. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, if you're interested in knowing more about those um, programs, feel free to type into the chat box either to me and everyone else and just type in coaching and I'll get um, more information out to you about those coaching programs. If you're in research, um, if you're in research and you are interested in working with industry, I've written a book on working with industry. If you like a copy of the book, I'm more than happy to send one out. Again, if you're, um, if you write into the um, chat box that you'd like the book, then I can make sure that I get a copy out to you of that as well. And if there's any other resources that you've seen on my website, there's a bunch of stuff around LinkedIn as well. And if they look good to you, or if there's a LinkedIn book that I've mentioned previously that looks good to you, let me know and I can get those out to you too. In terms of what's coming next, uh, next week I'll look at social media for researchers specifically focused on LinkedIn and how to use LinkedIn. Um, what's that? Oh, so Sinal's written, what salary range do you expect to negotiate for starting an industry right after a PhD? Uh, well, I think it, it's going to obviously vary for the kind of role that you're looking at. Some people are looking at, um, somewhere between 80 and a hundred thousand for, for a industry role, but it would depend on what industry, what you've done in your PhD and whether they've, you know, whether they feel like you've got the experience to take them forward. So if you've got something really unique to the industry partner, then you might expect something higher in that range. If you're quote unquote, just a PhD graduate that they're looking for, then it might be a bit lower or even outside that range, more like 60 to 70,000 for a graduate program. Um, then in, so next week it'll be LinkedIn. The week after is Melbourne cup day. So I'm going to take a day off. Uh, and then the week after that, we'll look at why you might set up your own website as a researcher. Uh, then later in November, we'll look at resilience as a researcher. If you've liked this, like I said, there's already a webinar on CV writing and changing streams. So a stream is research, uh, education, policy, um, management or um, a technical stream. So if, if, if you think that the, any of those apply to you, have a look at that webinar as well. And obviously I've got my webinar, my um, newsletter every week. Um, are there any tips you'd recommend for someone applying to jobs internationally, i.e. an American applying to Australian positions? Um, I think if Tim or Joyty wants to open their mic or write back, I think that would be a good, that would be better place to talk about those international transitions being involved in them themselves. Tim or Joyty, are you happy to open your mic? Hey, Richard. Yep. Hi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Alison wrote in the chat box, uh, are there any tips you'd recommend for someone applying to jobs internationally? And so the, the example that she's written is American applying to Australian positions. So you've done that um, or you came from America to Australia? Yeah. So we contacted personally because we applied for postdoc uh, position. So that yeah. was very easy. It's a personal communication and uh, we went through their website and yeah. We uh, looked at what research they are doing, and uh, basically we formed a cover letter uh, relating to the the role, what yes. we can do, the kind of project we can do, and uh, and uh, from there we look for it. 
and few nature nature jobs and all we applied and we did get some one or two response from there also yeah so it's on skill yeah i can add something too so i'm american yep and um when i was coming for a postdoc in australia i actually um took a vacation out here and i um i wanted to visit australia and while i was here i contacted all labs and actually just offered to go visit a lab and and just talk to them and meet them yeah. and that um you know generated some interest right there and so i took it as an opportunity to really just take a vacation i was finishing my thesis and everything um and then you know entertain the idea of, of possibly um you know finding position here and then that worked out so um yeah sometimes yeah just having a visit while you know if you're going to a conference in another country have an extra week there and just um try to meet um a lot of people and and um because you know that that distance can be a challenge like you yeah. know when you're really far away and if there's a way that you can actually physically be there for a certain amount of time you know that can definitely help yeah thanks that was tim yeah 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 um the other question I have is, are there cultural differences that are worth noting between the way you would apply for a role in the US versus the way you would apply for a role in Australia? So you just, both of you just said networking was key, but what about in terms of the application process itself? Yeah, so it, it's very different. Um, and in fact, you know, I'm applying for positions in the US right now and um, they have like a very lengthy, you know, like cover letter, research statement, teaching statement and even a diversity statement now. So they have just um, much more material you have to submit. And, and I, I agree with what you said earlier that I think some of it is very, um, just very lengthy and very tedious because, you know, you're just getting shortlisted at first and they have this massive volume of material. And so, um, but yeah, that's how it works in America. And so you have to um, be as, you know, I think crisp as possible and, get the material really clearly presented where you will hopefully be, be seen really clearly. Um, and um, cause I think a lot of people they'll write like really dense, really cram it all into all the margins. And then, you know, they, they have to read a lot of material. Um, so yeah. So I think one thing is that yeah, culturally that like, there'll be differences in how applications are done. I think here in Australia, like you have to address the, the criteria, like, um, and that's like, I think a shorter statement, but you have to, yeah. You know, there's a certain, I think, strategies for how you do that. And um, and then, uh, yeah, just like the fellowships you can get, the funding um, and teaching expectations. Like a lot of times in the U.S. you have to, you know, teach as well, like in the in the courses. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want anything you want to add? No, that's, uh, that's it. Like Australia, yes, there is a difference. But uh, generally, if you depends if you are applying for academia or industry directly industry is gonna be tough if you're coming from outside because already it's very small industry yeah 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 obviously the the, the pond the australian pond is very small compared to the u.s pond yeah yeah and nowadays you anything else? nowadays in academia also for postdoc positions i have a uh, few of my colleagues have contacted me how you found the job here they lot of uh, researcher they ask for applying for gra uh, grant yeah in advance if you have some papers already so they ask you to submit it and uh, like arc decra fellowship things yes. like that that helps 
Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, Alison, if you're going to come, like if you're looking for a job in Australia, fellowships would, would be one of the things that I'd be looking for, not just a job per se, if that makes sense, or applying to a fellowship. The problem with the fellowship route is the duration. So you'll, so Joyce, didn't say this, but if you apply now for a fellowship, the applications are due, you know, early next year, then they'll take the entire 2020 to review those applications. Then you'll be notified of success at the end of 2020. And then your fellowship will start in 2021. So you're looking at a lead time that could be depending on when you start the process anywhere from 18 months all the way to 24 months. So I presume fellowship applications are similar in the U S yeah. And, and that's a good point about the timing that, um, you know, like positions I'm applying for right now, they won't actually start until next August. Yes. You know, so you have to plan ahead and think, when would you want to start there? Because, mm. um, and actually, yeah, do, do you know for industry positions, like how long would you take to get an offer generally? Um, yeah, the it, in, industry will be much quicker. Like yeah. Month, like three months, it will be the longest it would take to go from ad to, to um, position. Yeah. Being offered. They might, depending on what kind of, time you need to like your um oh, i've forgotten the name of it how long how much notice you need to give your employer then that might make it a bit longer than three months but certainly in less than three months you'll know that you've got it and you can start yeah yeah so yeah like um yeah like for like academic positions it can be yeah really far in advance and for fellowships too and so yeah it's like you have to strategize i think in advance yes and one thing I can add for academic position, if somebody is looking for research fellow position, so similar to postdoc in US, you should look in, uh, into it more around December, November, December, end of November. Generally, the grant results, everybody will know. They will know their funding situation. Yes. Or uh, maximum January. So sometimes they have very little time to fill in. And if you apply at the right time, they need somebody uh, to fill that uh, uh, role in the grant application so yeah. that can be uh, useful. Yeah. yeah. If you apply in the middle of the year when they don't know what will happen to their funding, it's uh, basically they can't even commit to you. Yeah, correct. And although people might say, I'll keep you in mind, the reality is even the best people are going to forget that you, your CV or your interest floated across their desk. So I'd follow up, like Joyty said, so in Australia, you know, grant outcomes are known roughly in November. So mm. that's when you might be looking around for more jobs, more people looking for postdocs or research assistants or whatever kind of role you might be interested in around that time once their grants have been funded. And they'll know that their grant won't start until January or February uh, the following year. Yeah. Mm. You're right. Thanks, Alison. Thanks, Jyoti. Thanks, uh, Tim. Any other questions? No, I think it's... <laughs> you're all good. It's good, good. right? It's tough to find it out. <laughs> it's not easy. No. <laughs> cool. All right. Um. Well, that's it. If you'd um like to know more, like I said, put stuff in the chat box, and I'll get in touch with you. Otherwise, send me a message to any of the um stuff that's on the screen now. Uh, thanks for attending. I'll send after this, I'll send around an email that provides a link. This will go up on the internet at some point. There'll be a link that you can preview it so you can make sure you're happy with 
uh, anything that might have been in there that you might be otherwise worried about if it goes public. Um, and then it'll be live uh, a week or so after that. So about two weeks from now, this will be live on the internet. Thanks everyone for your time. I uh, hope to see you next week. Bye. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.